to be completely honest with you. Let me double check that. Yep, there it is. I didn't think it was humanly possible. To be completely honest with you, I did not think that this amount of volume could come out of a human being. It would have to come out of some different mammal on this planet. I did not think it was possible for a person to snore like this. I was at a retreat this weekend out at Camp Hickory Hill, and there was a sound that reverberated from this building that shook the walls, and I am not exaggerating. We were there with our boys. We were there with our friends, our family from this church. And there was something in the room that I've never experienced before. You've heard of people who snore. You may have a person in your family who snores, but you have never heard anything like this before. It was so violent, so percussive, that there was a child in the middle of the night who began to vomit because of the pain and the suffering that they were going through. And by morning, not all of us made it through the night. Kids had to go home because of the violence that they had gone through overnight. And then we spent the rest of the day yesterday there at the camp with our boys, being able to enjoy our time together. Yes, but we were all half awake half asleep, half ready to do some awful things to this individual. Who's not here this morning? That's nice, because we can talk about him. <laughs> My name is Pastor Milo. I'm so glad you came to church today. I'm glad you're here. We're going to open up, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, to the book of Jonah. Uh, Pastor Dan just read from there. I, I went over the line a little bit there to be able to kind of point out something that this text is going to bring to the light this morning. And the idea of being awake versus being asleep. Being awake versus being asleep. And, and it's no exaggeration that when coming home from this retreat, uh, it was a retreat that we went to with our sons. A lot of our boys are in Thursday night programs and we went out and had a good time together there at the camp this week. Uh, but, but we came home, and driving home, I was struggling to stay awake because I didn't sleep the night before. And so there are times when we go through life, when we kind of cruise through life, and we're not all there, if that makes sense. We're, we're sleepwalking. We're asleep at the wheel. For many of us, for many of you, you would probably say that about the last two years. You cannot believe that the last two years have passed. You cannot believe that it is the year 2023. How did this happen? And somewhere along the way, you've gone through the motions. You know that you went to work every day. You know that you got out of bed every morning. You're, you're sure that you did those things, but here you are, and you're not sure how you got here. In many ways, this happens to us in our spiritual lives as well. We used to be alert. We used to be aware of what was going on. We used to be engaged with God's Word. And now, many of you, many of us, have gone through the motions and fallen asleep in the process, doing the same things you used to do. And something has maybe changed. Your phase of life has changed. Different things have changed along the way. But you've kind of lost sight of the big picture. You've lost sight of the main goal, the main reason that we come together to worship, the main reason that you would open God's Word in your home every morning before you start the day. You've lost sight of those things, and you are sleepwalking through life, which is why our sermon this morning is the title, I'd Rather Be Asleep. 
I'd rather not see what's around me. I'd rather not pay any attention. I'd rather just be asleep because being asleep is really comfortable. It's really easy, and that's where I would rather be right now. Can I get an amen to that? Be careful. Maybe that has happened because a series of bad decisions have been made along the way. A series of bad decisions which have sent you on a trajectory that you are in an entirely different spot than you meant to be. And one by one, step by step, choice by choice, all of a sudden you are in an entirely different spot than you should be. Here's our first point this morning that I want to make and then we'll dive into the text because this is a bit of a recap from last year. Let me, let me recap before I get to the point. So we, we looked last week at the book of Jonah. The big idea of the book of Jonah is that it's not the children's story that you think that it is. Because most of us, we, we went around the room, we asked last week, said, how many of you know the story of Jonah? And you've heard the story of Jonah. And in your mind you have uh, the children's book story, you have Jonah and the what? The big fish, Jonah and the whale. And the story is not about the fish. We're going to get there. It'll be the last verse of what we cover today. But that one verse, that one sentence, is the only uh, talk of a fish in this book. But we've made it all about the fish. And we've missed the point. As we begin, you're going to see that, that Jonah is running from God. Jonah is on the run and we want to villainize him. We want to make him the bad guy. And what's going to happen here is we're going to realize that there's a lot more going on here. This is a, a strange type of literature because it looks and feels very much like uh, one of the minor prophets. The, the first words of this uh, book of the Bible are the exact same as the ones of the minor prophets around it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Obadiah. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. These, these minor prophets have the same way that they started, but when those other prophets hear the word of the Lord, then they speak that word, they live that word out in front of others for all to see. Jonah, however, is sleepwalking. Jonah is even more adamant. Last we saw, he turned and he ran away from God. So here's our first idea, first point for you this morning as we get started. When you're running from God, you'll always find a boat waiting for you. When you're running from God, you'll always find a boat waiting for you. What do I mean by that? There are so many times in life we will look at coincidences and we will try to spiritualize them and say, must be God wants me to do this thing, to act this way, to go to this place. I was just minding my own business and I started to fall in love with the secretary. Must be that God wants me to leave my wife and my family because it's right here. You see, when you're running from God, you'll always find a boat that's waiting for you. What happens here is we see Jonah. Let's look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 1. We covered this last week. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. He's given very specific instructions what he's supposed to be doing where he's supposed to be, and he finds too easily, he finds a way to get out of it. And that's the way that the enemy works. The enemy works, it gives us really easy opportunities for us to find a boat headed in the opposite direction. Go to the great city of Nineveh, God tells him, and preach against it because the wickedness has come up before me. God is aware of the wickedness of the city and he wants to send Jonah to go there and to go to rescue them. 
But Jonah, however, verse 3, ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. Last week we talked about how Tarshish is in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. First, it says here he had to go down to Joppa, so he had to go down to the southern part of Israel. He had to get on a ship, and he found a ship. Surprised, like, oh, there happens to be a ship here headed in the exact opposite direction is what God told me to do. He paid the fare, he went aboard, and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. When you're running from God, you'll always find an easy path. You'll always find that there is a boat waiting for you. This literature, this author, everything it seems to be is built in irony in this book. If you need to think about a context of like irony that we have in our modern culture, it would be like a Saturday Night Live skit, sketch, basically. Is that everything is kind of what you expect it to be, like, like maybe they're doing a sketch about uh, the news anchor and he's reading the news, but everything is out of whack, or a presidential candidate and they're, they're giving their speech, but everything's a little bit off. That's exactly what happens here. There's, there's this irony here is that Jonah is the one who's supposed to be the messenger from God, but he's the one who never seems to give the message from God. And then all the pagans in this book are the ones who are supposed to be adamantly against God, and yet they're the ones who seem to be uh, fighting for God. And you'll start to see these little nuances that happen throughout the book, and we're going to kind of get into that here today. In these first few verses of the chapter 1, we're going to see these kind of uh, clues to us that there's a trick being played on us. As Jonah runs away from the Lord, he heads to Tarshish. It says he went down to Joppa. And he found a ship bound to the poor. After paying the fare, some of your, my translation says that he went aboard, but some translations do say he went down into the ship. There's this, this storyline being told. He's going down, he's going down, he's going down, and he is going down. <laughs> and you're going to see that he's all about fleeing from what God's command is. Because here's your second point. When you're on the run, when you're running from God, you'll always try to escape reality. When you're on the run, when you're running from God, you will always try to escape reality. Let's see how he's trying to escape. Verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind onto the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid that each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But, but Jonah had what? He'd gone down. He'd gone below the deck where he did what? He lay down, and he fell into what? A deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. When you're running from God, you'll always try to escape reality. He is on the run. And it says that God spins up this great storm on the sea. Again, there's this thing that's going on in this book of Jonah. You're going to hear the word great is going to be repeated again and again. I think it's 12 different times here in the book of Jonah. You're going to hear the word great or enormous or large. Everything is larger than life. The, the camera is zoomed in a little bit more than you would expect. It's all huge. And it's this extreme context, and we see this, that Jonah's going down into the ship, and he's going down into the ship, and he's going down below, and he's falling deep into sleep, and he's, he's way far away from where he's supposed to be. And what does the captain say to him? He says, get what? Up. Wake up. 
what happens in our lives when we are on the run as we try to escape reality. This happens in our modern context in all types of different ways. There's the big targets that we can talk about, that we try to escape reality by drugs or abuse of alcohol. And those are things that, yes, you can put at the top of the list if you want to, but there are many, many other ways that when we're on the run, you're always going to try to escape the reality that God is God and you are not in control, but He is. And so we try all different types of things. We try fast cars. We try big houses. Or there's even now an understanding that, that, okay, the bigger house is not the better house. And so now there's an obsession with, well, I'm going to have a smaller house than what you have. I'm going to have such a small house, you won't even be able to fit it in the back of your car. I want to pursue the ability to retire when I'm 35. The ability where I won't have to work anymore. I won't have to do anything. I'll be able to live the life. I'll be able to travel anytime that I want. Go anywhere I want. There will be no strings attached. And I'm going to pursue all that. And it's an escape of reality. And that's where the pursuit is. This great wind comes across the sea. And so what we can do is we can look at a passage like this. And we can start to draw our own conclusions We can start to map out and mark out who we think that God is. This has been done for generations where we say, well, must be God is just an angry, cruel God that he wants to throw down lightning bolts and mess with Jonah just like he wants to mess with all of us here on the earth because he wants to control us. But that's us drawing God in our image because we're missing the point of the whole reason that he is going after Jonah is what? Because he is sending Jonah to the people of Nineveh. He's sending them to the people of Nineveh who are awful, terrible people who are defiant against God. They are Gentiles. They are not the Israelites. They are not God's children or his chosen people. And yet he is saying, I want to give them the opportunity to repent. I want to go after them. I want to rescue them and give them an opportunity, give them a chance to be in relationship with me. That's what he's after, and that's why he's disciplining Jonah. So don't miss that. Because if you miss that larger context, then you'll start to paint the story about how God is a mean or an angry God or a controlling God. When the reality is he's given Jonah all the freedom in the world, and he is running dead in the opposite direction. He is trying to escape the reality of the fact that God is in control. When we were kids, I don't remember this story specifically. My parents tell this story all the time, so I'm going to get to tell it one more time here today. We were little. I believe I was three or four. My younger sister, Lydia, my next youngest sister was two or three. All the extended family was over at our house. It was either Christmas or Thanksgiving, one of those types of things. All the kids had been put to bed. And as you know, if you've got little children, you put them to bed when there's family over, and they will never go to bed. They will never stay in their room, even if they have a success of 30 days uh, under their belt. When the family is around and they're there and they can look at you and judge you for how bad of a parent you are, that's when the kids all want to come back. That's when they all want water three times over and all those types of things. Well, this is what happened with my younger sister as she was sent to bed and about 20 minutes later, she came into the living room with a blanket over her head and she came in and she sat down. Because she believed since she couldn't see anyone, then must be they can't see her either. Lydia, what are you doing here? And she didn't answer. She was smart enough not to answer. 
Lydia, it's time for you to be in bed. And she just sat there and said, maybe they won't see me. An escape from reality. And, and Jonah is doing the same thing. The omnipotent, all-powerful, creator God, knower of all things in the universe. And he says, I'm going to get on a ship and I'll go hide in the belly of the ship and he won't know that I'm there. He's got a blanket over his head. He's trying to escape reality. He lays down. He falls into a deep sleep. The captain goes to him. He says, how can you sleep? Get up. Put yourself in, in this captain's mind for a moment. Like he's only a small character in the story. But think about this captain. They're in the, the rough seas. They're in this terrible storm, a violent storm, and it is threatening to break up the ship. As I was studying this this week, the, the ship is almost personified in this story, that the ship is trying to make a decision of whether it wants to, to break up with Jonah, is kind of what the idea is. The, the ship is trying to decide whether it wants to be in the storm or it's just going to give up on the storm. And this is the ship that this is the captain of the ship. They've, they've thrown their cargo overboard. They are having all of this. Now, now this is their livelihood. This is, the, this is all of what they have. And, and, and they've got Jonah, and he is part of their cargo. And they're trying to figure out what is going on. They're polytheistic people because it says they are praying to their gods, plural. They're trying to figure out, well, if your God isn't able to rescue us, let's ask about his God. Let's ask about his God. What about your God? Let's ask any of them. Let's just, just pray generally to God as a whole or gods as a whole. Maybe one of them will show up. Let's find out whose God this guy, Jonah, might be praying to. Because if we haven't knocked that one off the list, maybe we need to consider it. He says, how can you sleep? The title of the sermon is, I'd rather be asleep. I'd rather not pay attention to what's going on. I'd rather not be aware. I'd rather just consider myself here in the bottom of the ship and let you guys deal with everything else that's going on. I'd rather be asleep. I'm checked out. I'm not interested. And the captain of the ship is about to mess him up. Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we don't all perish. Here's what happens. When you're denying the truth, when you're denying the truth, you'll always put people at risk. When you're denying the truth. So when you're on the run and you're denying the truth, so he is, he is hoping and praying and thinking that God won't notice him here, that, that his, his failures will not uh, come after him, that his disobedience, his defiant shaking his fist at God is not going to have an effect. But what actually is happening, he's denying the truth of who God is, and he is putting people at risk. And we do the same thing when we run from God. The sailors said to each other, verse 7, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. There's multiple times throughout Scripture you see this, where people will cast lots. It's a way that they believe that they would be able to find out what God's will is or be able to find out. Uh, it's a way of you know, rolling the dice or being able to say it. And we say, okay, uh, because of the fortune of this misfortune, meaning that in this case he wins, Jonah won. And that means that he is the one who's at fault is the way that they figured it out. Again, even as you look at this, you think about the captain, you think about the ship, you think of all that they are about to lose. Uh, I don't think that they were such strict uh, people that they cast lots with, with honesty and integrity. I think they definitely made sure that Jonah's name came up. You better talk, brother. What's going on here? And they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? 
What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He is at the table and they have the flashlight in his face and they are going to find out what the deal is with this guy. And here comes the absurdity and the irony of this book. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. He's the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He is telling them who he worships, who God is. Because again, in their polytheistic mindset, there's all these different guys. He says, no, I worship God. He made everything. He made the sea. He made the dry land. And we are in the middle of the storm. And he made it all. This terrifies them. They say, what have you done? In my Bible, it's in parentheses, I think it is here on the screen as well. They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. We don't get where that is in the dialogue, but he says he already told them so. Meaning when he came aboard, when he checked in his ticket and they said, where are you headed? I would like a ticket to Tarshish, please. I am on my way from running away from the Lord. Okay. And they click his ticket and off he goes. They already knew that about him. He had already told them that at some point, somewhere in the dial, I said, okay, that's fine, I guess, whatever. Is your money good here? Your money's good here. Go, go down into the ship. But verse 11, the sea is getting rougher and rougher. What should we do to make, uh, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Now they're getting very direct. They have done everything they could possibly think of to this point. What should we do to you to, to make the sea calm down for us? Verse 12, he says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied. It will become calm. I know that it is my fault, for this great storm has come upon you. When you're in denial, when you're denying the truth, you will always put people at risk. He's on the run. He's there, he's on the ship, he's gone down deep into the ship. The captain of the ship has told him to wake up, to snap out of it. The God that you have angered, it would appear you should do something about that. As you look at this passage, you need to know that there's a couple of different ways that this is uh, understood to be. There's a couple of different ways to look at this. First was that at this moment when he says, throw me into the sea, I'm surrendering myself. I'm throwing myself before the Lord. And if God wants to redeem me, rescue me, save me, he will. But I'm putting myself in front of him. And God will do the rest. Or there's another argument that says, no, this is the most selfish thing that he could possibly do because he says, throw me into the sea and that will make sure that I will never have to go to Nineveh. That if I die here in the sea, who cares what happens to the rest of these people? Who cares? I don't care because he's selfishly motivated, all about him. He says, Take me and then I'll never have to go to Nineveh no matter how many times God tells me to because I will die here. If you can tell, I believe that's the bias that I have when I look at this text because the way that the rest of the book of Jonah will move and the way that move, and, and as we go through the book of Jonah, you'll see that he continually, defiantly says, just kill me, I don't want to do this. He says, throw me in the sea. I know it's my fault. He knows it's his fault. He's in denial that God's going to do anything about it. This great storm has come upon you. Next point, when you call out to God, he will always 
provide a way. When you call out to God, he will always provide a way. You see, as we've been moving our way through this passage, I've used a lot of you statements. I've made this story about you and about me, which is entirely incorrect, to be honest with you, because this passage has nothing to do with you or me specifically. This is about a man named Jonah and the journey that he is on. But what happens here is we get this bigger picture, this bigger understanding of the character of God. And when you call out to God, when I call out to God, he will always prepare a way. And you don't have to be one of God's chosen people. What happens here is these men, these sailors, they call out to God. And you watch that God prepares for them. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. They did not want to do this thing. They did not want to be responsible. Look, they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. They cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, you have done as you please. It's as if they are in the middle of the sea. They're in the middle of the bathtub, if you will. The water's sloshing all around, back and forth, back and forth, and they're paddling furiously. And the hand of God, the finger of God, is on the nose of the boat. It says, all right, knock yourself out, guys. Then they took Jonah. They threw him overboard. And the raging sea immediately grows calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made their vows to him. Something spectacular happens here. Again, as we walk through this book of Jonah, you're going to see it again and again and again. The people who are farthest away from God, the people who should be shaking their fists at God, the people who should be uh, uh, openly and angrily yelling things at God, they're the ones that say, God, save us, God, rescue us, and God shows his mercy and shows his grace. The sea becomes calm. Verse 17, the only time the fish shows up in the story. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And it's on this verse that we have built our whole mindset of what happens here in Jonah. But this book is not about a great fish. This book is about a great God. When we want to run, God wants to pursue us and to rescue us. God is after us. When we want, here's your next idea, when we protect ourselves, God pursues our souls. See, this is all about Jonah protecting himself. Even the men on the boat are really trying to protect themselves, protect their cargo, protect their ship, protect their own lives. This is what Jonah is all about. He says, if I go to Nineveh, I could be killed. I could be uh, hurt. I could be tortured. Those people are really mean. I don't want to go there. And God is not concerned at all with his well-being. And again, when we start to draw our own image of God, our own picture of God, rather than the God of the, of the Bible, the God of the universe, the real and true God, then we start to draw on pictures, well, he always wants things to happen to, to me and to you that are, are blessings. He wants me to be successful. He, want, he, he may not want those things for you at all. He doesn't want me to go through pain or go through suffering or go through trials. He, he very well might want you to go through those things. If it means that he is able to get a hold of your soul, 
I served at a church with a guitar player who had this big, deep, booming voice. And there was a, a short, younger woman in the church who, who I kind of walked up as he was having this conversation. He's a very intimidating guy, big, booming voice. And he says to her, he said, Leah, how is your soul? Freaked the lady out. Turns out she had just purchased a Kia Soul. And he was interested in buying a new vehicle. He wanted to know how her new car was and whether or not she liked it and whether he should go out and buy that car. But she was completely wigged out. How is your soul? It's not something that I would ask many of you either this morning. I don't know the condition of your heart, the condition of your soul, but you need to understand that the God of the universe knows that already, and he is pursuing after you, just like he's doing here with Jonah. Jonah is on the run, and God is not concerned about his well-being. God is concerned about his soul. Eternal significance there. We protect ourselves. God pursues our souls. You see the reference there is in Matthew. This is the, the reference that, that Jesus, as he is walking on the earth, the God of the universe made incarnate so that, so that we can, and can see him in flesh and blood here on the earth. This is what he refers back to when he is talking about the story of Jonah. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they say, say Teacher, we want to see a sign from you, is what he says, is what they say to him. They want to see a sign. They want to see a blessing. They want to see good fortune come to them because they know who Jesus is. They want to see a miracle. They want to see all that they believe that they have drawn out that God would do for the one who was going to come to rescue them, to be this victorious warrior who's going to take them out from underneath the control of the Roman Empire. That's what they wanted to see. Show me a sign. And Jesus responds, he said, you are a wicked and adulterous generation asking for a sign. And none of you will see this except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he refers to this passage, this moment that we just looked at this morning. In verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, you want to know about stuff, you want to know about things, you want to know about victory, you want to know about blessings. And he says, I don't care about those things. You need to understand that I am here to rescue your soul. And Jesus came to rescue our soul, to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for your sin and for mine. To die on the cross, an innocent man, but to be buried for what? To be buried in the ground, in the grave, for three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, going down into the earth. It's the same word. To be resurrected on the third day. To be victorious over sin. Be victorious over death. Because he is after your soul. He is going to rescue your soul. He is in pursuit of mankind. Humankind. The soul. So this morning, if the challenge as we look at this passage was to say, I'd rather be sleeping for me to say to you, I'd rather you wake up. Many of you actually would respond and say, I would rather wake up too. I don't actually like living in this sleepwalking type of world. I want, I want to see my life changed or transformed. 
And so walk down the aisles of Barnes & Noble uh, bookstore and you'll see aisles and aisles and aisles of self-help books that are going to try to help you wake up to the real and better you. But the reality is it always comes back to protecting ourselves and making ourselves better. God says, I'm not interested in your self. I'm interested in your soul. You cannot decide to just wake up. You cannot decide to do better, to try harder, to, to accomplish more. You, you will always start to pursue after self. You're, we are self-motivated, self-interested, self-driven people, but for the what? Grace of God. We sang before the break, before I walked out here, I was over at the piano, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing. Absolutely nothing but the blood. There is no other way that we are able to come into the throne room of God. There is no other way that we have any hope in this world but for the grace of God through the blood of Jesus on the cross. He said the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And by doing so, He has bought through His blood our salvation. As the band comes forward this morning, as we come to a time to close, we'll be singing a song called, Great Are You, Lord. It's your breath in my lungs, and I pour out my praise. The very breath that we have is because God has allowed that to happen. Do not, for, for any reason presume or assume that it's anything else, some type of alternate reality, because that's what we start to do, is we start to build a case for some other way that things are happening in our life. But no, God has allowed these things to happen. He's doing so because He's in constant pursuit after mankind, after our heart. We talked last week. I'll bring it up again this morning. I'm going to bring it up each week as we make our way through this series about a change that I'm going to make at the end of our services, uh, certainly this year and this series and maybe further than that. A change to have a formal altar call. And, and realizing, even as I said that over the week last week, was to say, we don't, we don't all know what that is. I grew up in a context where that was part of our every day, every week uh, thing. For me to say, what is an altar call? An opportunity that if God is moving in your heart, stirring something in you, that your response is to move your feet in response to that. That is something that pastors, that evangelists have been doing uh, well before even there was people settling here in the United States. That churches were calling one another to say, if God is moving in your heart, will you move your feet to respond to that? And I will, I will tell you that actually for me, that's been a journey for me as well because I did grow up in a context where that was manipulated at times and confused at times. And so I've been hesitant to that. So, so I'm trying to be transparent with you to let you know for me, this is an act of obedience for me to stand here and ask you, will you, I've made some steps down here. We'll say, let's have a time. Will you also consider taking some steps? Is God doing something in your heart? Are you on the run? Do you need to be willing to surrender it all to God? To understand, to believe, to know, to see what it looks like when we pursue ourselves. 
or to believe and understand that God is after your soul. How is your soul? Are you in a right relationship? Are you in a right standing before God? So logistically, here's how it's going to work, because we do want to make this as reasonable as possible, if you will. Each week, I'll ask you to stand, and we will sing the first stanza or the first two stanzas of a song together, just so that so that it's not about me standing here up front, that we are worshiping God, that our, that our focus and our face is towards the cross, because that's really where our focus is. But if you would, if you would come forward in that time, if it is something that God is stirring you to come forward, there's, there's seats here in the front, you can come and sit, and I'll sit and pray with you. I'll take a note on a connection card, so I'll make sure that we're praying for the right thing. We've even asked the congregation to pray for you as well. It's not going to always be a move towards salvation, but maybe just a move towards obedience. So again, me offering the invitation or offering the altar is, I'm trying to demonstrate for you, it is an act of obedience for me to say, I've been kind of stumbling over whether to do this or not for a couple years now. I believe it's time. So would you stand with us as we sing? As I said, we'll sing a couple of stanzas together. If you'd like to come and talk to me or just come and pray before the cross, the altar's open, the invitation is open.